0: Let's hack the process together. It's the 21st century, and we all have inexpensive access to clouds full of computing power to help us manage our contact networks. But what good is the information if we don't know how to use it? Svi Band has spent years helping customers of his Contactually CRM develop and maintain meaningful relationships to further their goals, and he's condensed that learning into a new book, Success is in Your Sphere. In this episode of Hack the Process... Svi will tell us how he went from an introvert who avoided social situations to a networking expert, what relationship building has done for his career as an executive and a speaker, and why it's important to know which of your friends you would be comfortable lending $20. So today I'm talking with Zvi Band, and he's the author of a new book called Success in Your Sphere. Zvi, how are you doing today? I am doing great, David. Thanks so much for your time. (laughs) It's uh, really good to meet you, and I've been reading about you, and I've been reading some of the previews of your book. I haven't actually gotten a chance to get the full copy, but I like what I see so far.
1: Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, It's a scary time. You know, you and I are both come from software world where if something doesn't work, you deploy patch and fix it and that's it. But when it comes to a, a physical book, you can't patch a physical book. And so I'm in this really nervous period where despite having done numerous read throughs and had friends review it, et cetera, it's now out in the wild. I'm like, well, whatever happens, happens. I hope people like it. <laughs>
0: I think coming from software development, you have a different perspective on it. I think most people think they write the book, they don't expect to be able to patch it in the future, but we've come up with this expectation from the work we've done.
1: Exactly. No, I mean, we expect like, you know, following an agile iterative process, you know, if something doesn't work, we learn from it and iterate from there. But, you know, yes, I could release a second edition theoretically or, you know, online addendums. But, you know, if someone doesn't like chapter three, well,
0: it's still going to be chapter three. <laughs> That's true. It's always going to crystallize for forever this moment in time of what you thought at that point. Exactly. So the book is about, I'm going to say roughly, it's about building and nurturing relationships in order to further your business, your career and your life in general is what I understand.
1: Yep, absolutely. I, I think you know, we can all look back or many professionals can look back and realize that relationships were a key part. You know, It may have resulted in a referral or a job or you have hiring a really good candidate. So everyone knows that. But what we, most of us lack is a process oriented approach to be able to nurture those relationships. Like how do we structure? Who do we who do we talk to? How do we stay in touch? Who should I talk to? What should I say? How do I add value. This is where a lot of people really fall short and myself
0: included. And that's really the goal behind this book. When you talk about it that way, it feels almost clinical, but this is about relationships, which is a very soft science rather than a hard science.
1: There's both in that aspect. Yes, relationships are a soft science. But as we know, you know, like, I think we understand enough about our our human beings to know that there's a lot of science behind that. So for example, uh, one of the popular pieces of research out there is Robin Dunbar did a study and identified that, you know, the average human being can maintain around 150 social connections at any one point in time. And that all of a sudden gets very scary. Like, wait a second, I I can only have like 150 friends or I may not be in someone's, you know, 150 person friend queue, that's kind of disturbing. And so that's where, you know, yes, science has helped us understand that, but also then technology and process can help us counteract that.
0: It's true, and it, it comes down to a whole different definition when you come up with terms like "friend" as Facebook uses it versus "follower," the way that Twitter uses it versus "friend," the way that the Dunbar number would would apply it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And this is one of the things I think where you know technology—don't get me wrong—technology has been amazing for us in that we can connect to anyone in the world, but that also means that we're connected to everyone in the world, and you know we can go a mile wide, but only therefore an inch deep. And so, yes, like we can have thousands of LinkedIn connections. I have 40,000 people in my CRM. But one of the things that we have to always ask is like, well, who has our back or who's back do we have? one of the tests I always recommend on stage is well pull up a uh, LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or whatever what have you even open up your phone and scroll up and down pick a random person and really ask yourself the question you know if this person reached out to me and asked for a favor let's say they just needed to borrow 20 bucks you know would you lend it to them maybe maybe not probably not you know, if you if you look at it and worse yet, what if we were in a position where we needed 20 bucks from them and a bunch of other people on the list? How many of them would, you know, would go to bat for us? That's kind of gets where it gets to really be really scary that. And there's no, no surprise that, you know, Cigna, this healthcare company, they did a survey and, you know, out of 20,000 Americans surveyed, nearly half
0: said they were lonely. I think loneliness is part of the nature of the world that we're living in these days because people are still learning how to deal with friendships that are like remote or electronically mediated. Yeah,
1: exactly. And because it's electronically mediated, you know, it may not always be conducive to what we humans seek, which is deep personal connection, you know, knowing that someone cares about us and will support us. So I hate to say a lot of these, the tactics and strategies in the book, they're not mind blowing. But it's kind of giving people a new frame of mind for how to work classic things nowadays. So, for example, you know, one aspect that people have known for years that biologically has been important for us is small talk. Right. It's a way of building rapport and building enough social connection to be able to have a slightly deeper conversation. Well, most of us nowadays kind of consider small talk as like a complete waste of time. Just get to the point. That's it. And there's actually beauty in small talk. There's information about each other that's, you know, about our kids, about our families, about our dreams or where we live, et cetera, that can
0: become really important. Yeah, I think that that position where small talk might be dismissed as irrelevant, I think comes from a sense of trying to over-optimize our lives, maybe, and trying to fit everything into these narrow time bands that we give for each of the different tasks that we want to accomplish in a day.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, yes, yeah, we, we know that there's this you know, drive to be hyper-productive at any one point in time, and how do I make as much use for my time as possible? And with things like relationships or social connection and that's sometimes counterintuitive and I know this is crazy because I built a CRM solution that was all about building and gaining leverage over key relationships but still you know I, we all know that the absolute best way to build and maintain rapport is you know direct face to face communication talking through each other sharing problems giving each other like the gift of each other's time that's an incredibly valuable thing that sometimes we lose track of it's true. And so you built contextually. You you were the CEO of it before it was recently acquired by Compass, correct? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and still with the company. Yeah, it was uh we co-founded it back in 2011.
0: It's been an amazing ride. <laughs> What was it that led you to to focus on relationships and relationship building as a thing that you wanted to build your life around? Yeah. And I would have never
1: thought I'd be building my life around it. I remember, you know, I, I'm the kid that freshman year of college, I like wanted to go home every weekend because I didn't want to have to talk to people. Or, you know, when I, I when I first graduated college, I was invited to like new higher networking events. And that sounded like the absolute worst thing I could ever do. And I talk about it at the beginning of the book, but I did find myself, you know, in a position where I really needed to rely on relationships and who I knew people that I had connected with that again, I didn't think I was networking, I was just kind of going to events and making friends. But those relationships ended up becoming this amazing, amazing asset for me. I became CTO of an enterprise software company that has was acquired back in 2009. And then I was working with the likes of Ford and CBS and Volkswagen, all these amazing companies based off of relationships, just knowing the right people. So I saw the power in it, but I think we
0: also saw the challenges with it. Well, yeah, because it sounds to me like you might've come from a more natively introverted background where you didn't feel so much like socializing with people, but you then experienced so much reward from the socializing that you had done that you recognized it was worth investing some attention and energy to it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's where, you know, investing that time and attention to it, that's where I started to see the flaws. Like I'd meet someone for coffee and then two weeks later, I would completely forget about them. And therefore, most likely they forgot about me, or I was so focused on the current project or the top of my inbox, as we all are, that you miss out on everything after, you know, we talk about the tyranny of the urgent that there are so many things being thrown at us, you know, our email inboxes, push notifications, social media, that we miss out on everything that's not directly in front of us. And so we came up with this concept of well, why can't tools help us stay in touch? Why can't tools help us build relationships, right? If software can never forget, whereas humans always forget, you know, how can you marry those two? And so that was the idea behind a proactive relationship
0: focused CRM came about. Right. And with a computer science background, you would turn to computers as the way to do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, if again, it uh, started off with this idea of how do we build a digital copy of every interaction we've ever ever had Luckily, this is 2011 and APIs were just starting to kind of really gain steam, especially around like email and at least then social media. So you could pull a list of all of your Facebook conversations. You could pull a list of all of your email interactions and calendar appointments and what have you. And so that allowed us to start to build this brain for everyone for everyone who's using us. Of okay, here's every conversation you've had. Here's every relationship. Therefore, this is you know, who you probably want to reach out to. Here's a place where you can capture notes. Here's information we found online about them. And we can help be almost that personal assistant, solely focused on relationships for each and every user.
0: So the contextually headed genesis and the idea of tracking the interactions that you were already having and then extrapolating from that? Exactly, right? If there's the time decay of
1: memory for human beings, there is no time decay of data. Theoretically, right? And so, how do how do you know how do machines come in and help us do that, and then resurface those relationships at any point in time? So, for example, if I say I want to stay in touch with my past clients every ninety days, great, I can just tell you, I can tell my software, I can tell Contactually to stay in touch with my past clients every ninety days. I can completely forget about them, go about my business, and all of a sudden, you know, ninety one days later will surface, hey, hey, by the way, like, you know, here's someone that you haven't spoken to in 91 days, why don't you reach out to them? That's the really powerful thing of technology. The challenge is, though, is that, again, I think we've missed out on a lot of these relationship building skills. You know, this is not something that's taught in college or business school or law school. And so people kept coming to us, you know, at Contaxi and saying, hey, this is great. I know how to use your software, but I don't
0: know how to grow my business using your software. And so that was the genesis behind the book. Interesting. I can tell you, I've gotten trapped into those cycles of emails that I get from people who are trying to appear personal and trying to stay in touch on a regular basis, but they have templates. And they send me out an email every 90 days to say, hey, we should stay in touch. And I recognize it as a template.
1: Yeah. And that's where uh, we have a whole chapter focused on this is that, yeah, the the last thing we really want to do is just be following up and that every interaction should be personable, you know, meaningful and authentic, and in some way valuable to that person. So yeah, just saying like, hey, we should catch up like that doesn't tell me anything. But if I were to send you a text message saying, hey, David, it's been a few months, you know, just thought of you, like, I'd love to hear how you're doing, no need to respond if you're really busy, but just thinking about you, that's completely different. And all I did was change my words and maybe change the channel. So it's coming in via text message, which is a little more personal and not via email where it gets filtered and spam. Obviously, you can do more. You know, you can learn solving problems. You know, I mentioned a company that you may want to check out because you're an agile coach. That could be a solution for you. There are all sorts of different things you can do as long as we're rooted in really, truly caring about the person that we're trying to build a relationship with.
0: It's hard, though, to keep track of that many people, and I suppose I'm trying to, to visualize how a CRM tool could both surface those interactions that are timely and that have, have come due because it's been a while, but also bring to mind all of those aspects of the relationship that you might want to nurture.
1: Yeah. And that's the point of, you know, the, the capital strategy. And this is also represented in software too, is that one of the first things that we want to do, if, we, if we're kind of struggling with like, who do I talk to? When do I need to talk to them? What do I need to say? One of the first aspects that we need to focus on is, well, we need to identify all of our relationships, you know, get all of them into one place. Maybe it's putting them in a spreadsheet or CRM or database. I know many amazing professionals that literally their way of tracking relationships with was index cards. You <laughs> may remember, you know, our parents or grandparents, they would be using like the Rolodex by their computer. From there, you know, per your point, well, I have thousands of contacts, you know, who do I need to talk to? And, you know, we propose to people that, hey, well, the first thing that you need to do is identify, well, what are your goals? What are you trying to achieve? And each of us have different goals. Each of us are seeking different things. You know, maybe we're looking for a new job. Maybe we're looking for more clients or for more referrals or for investors or to build a really great team for our next company there's so many different things we can do. But once we've identified kind of that goal, then we can start to figure out the types of people that will help us with that goal. And then it makes makes it much clearer as we look through our database, okay, who are the types of people that really can be part of that story for us?
0: Interesting. And then it's just a question of figuring out how to sort through thousands and identify the ones that are the most relevant in a given context.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, And that. Don't get me wrong. There can be like, you know, an N plus one challenge and that you have to go through each person individually. I would usually pose against that. But normally, like, for example, if I'm thinking about, okay, I want to generate new business, one of the best ways of generating new business is to stay in touch with past clients. Okay, who are my past clients? you might look at your database of 40,000 and really struggle figuring out who your past clients are but could you look at your billing system and export your past clients or could you search for certain keywords you know could you look for identifying factors there are certain things that we can do for that but this again it, it at least gives us a framework to start filling those
0: buckets Right but then as you said it gets to the point where somebody you know we might have the technology we might have the tools but uh, you say that your book is designed to help people figure out how to nurture those those relationships and really see what they want and how to how to use them and be of use to them as well Yep absolutely how so
1: once we've prioritized like gaining intelligence is a, a, again a really important thing so when we're trying to gain intelligence you know again There's, you know, doing online research. So again, you're an agile coach. Okay, great. What are the different interesting products I've seen or our team, our agile team is using to be able to operate a teams a little better? Why would I suggest that to you? That might be helpful, you know, pick out a particular trend. Then there's also even just, you know, frankly, just, you know, just the conversations that we're having, right? What out of this conversation, what came out that was really interesting and capture that. So for example, again, small talk, most of us consider small talk to be a a relatively useless thing, right? You know, it's like, it's normal, it's boring stuff that we just have to kind of get through cultural niceties to be able to have a real conversation. But what if we paid attention to that? In the book, I walked through an example that I ran through that, you know, I was having a conversation with someone. And as we're walking out the door, he mentioned that his, uh, his little kid was playing in a basketball tournament that weekend, and he loves playing basketball with his kid. Okay, great. Well, instead of saying the normal, boring like, hey, David, it was really great meeting you this weekend or this week, I would love to stay in touch with you. Have a good weekend. I went on Amazon, spent ten dollars and had a basketball with a gift note shipped to his house. (laughs) Ten dollars. Right. You know, it's small little things like that that can show that we care about the person,
0: not the transaction. It pays to pay attention to that kind of thing when you're having that kind of conversation. And I suppose you could even tag people in your CRM and let the, keep track of those things that may come up later. Exactly. One of the silly uh, one of the silly
1: tactics that was taught to me by one of our big customers is he advised people to have a small bladder. And what that meant is that, you know, if you're at a party or networking event or dinner, you know, after every single conversation, you know, excuse yourself to the hallway, however you need to say so you have a call or you need to go to the bathroom, we'll catch some air and sit and just type up the notes on your phone of what you just learned. And getting into those habits, um, and again, those process oriented things, those can make a huge impact because all of a sudden, you have a, an incredible database. So when you're following up with David, you know, you can say, by the way, like, you know, did you try it retro? I suggested that to you last time. That's right. And you mentioned that there's a a system called capital mentioned in your book, right? Yeah. So the capital strategy just basically coalesces the process that we've learned through tens of thousands of people on how to build and maintain relationships. C is for consistency. And so making sure that we're staying engaged uh, on a regular basis and doing actions because you know, relationship building is a long-term process, not something with short-term gains. So building that consistent habit is really important. A, we talked about is aggregate, getting all getting your entire database into one place, or every different, every disparate data source into one place. From there, P, prioritize, we we prioritize our relationships around the goals we're trying to achieve. A is for investigate. So making the point of investigating the relationships that you're trying to build and then gaining intelligence. So capturing that information from conversations. Then T, right? I haven't skipped anything. All right. C-A-P-I-T. T is for timely engagement. Making sure that we're identifying some minimum cadence that we want to stay in touch with or finding opportunities to reach out. A is for adding value. So again, not following up, not just saying, hey, how's it's going? Tell me the latest. We should catch up soon. But actually trying to add value to the people. And the last L is leverage. You know, how do we make sure that we're operating in a higher leverage fashion? That all follows logically. How did you come to develop this approach? Yeah, it's funny. Um, So not really, again, like most, you know, like most software companies having a general idea of what we wanted to achieve, but not necessarily sure of what it might look like. And so really following like a very iterative process and doing our customer development, you know, and as we reach product market fit, of course, the product, you know, matured. And so we kind of looked and, you know, we understood how people, how our successful users were using the product and the capital strategy came out of that. So it's funny, you know, most, you know, a lot of software starts from book readings or learnings or intelligence, you know, that feeds kind of software designs. We had the opposite where this book was really fed around the software and
0: watching how people were using it. It's nice because some people start off trying to write a book without the background and the experience. It feels to me like this one came out of so much information. There was no choice but to put it out in a book. (laughs)
1: Yeah, exactly. And this is the the way I equate this is we we saw that this trend with our software as we were watching people using it, that there were people who were really good at using the product and knew what to do and knew how to use it and were amazing at growing their business. And then there were people who learned how to use our product, but then got stuck. And we learned that the missing gap was that they knew how to use our product, but they didn't know how to grow their business using our product. And I equate this nowadays to... um, You know, with Contactually, we were giving everyone a chef's knife, but just giving everyone a chef's knife doesn't mean they know how to cook. And so we had to teach people how to cook as well. And so that was the the synthesizing idea behind this book. So did you try to incorporate that into Contactually itself? So there's definitely a lot of aspects to it. Our training, and a lot of this actually comes out of our, our customer facing teams who over the years had to, you know, out of necessity to, to be able to help our users with their business, had to develop this strategy, had to develop these ideas. So, yeah, this uh, this is coalescing from that for sure. If I understand correctly, contextually was targeted at uh, real estate professionals, right? So we started off at a very general aspect, you start solving the the generic approach of how do we build and maintain relationships for any kind of professional from there, we started seeing a lot of traction among uh, professional services. So financial advisors, consultants, accountants, freelancers, entrepreneurs, it turns out that one of our biggest markets was residential real estate agents. So we work with eight of the top 20 brokerages in the country, obviously I end up being acquired by Compass, which is a big tech-enabled real estate company. But again, going back to 2011, when I founded the company, I had no idea that we'd end up here.
0: <laughs> I'm curious whether it was that that market informed the way that the company evolved, or if the company's strategies and tools informed the way that the audience was drawn to it. I
1: think there's a little bit of both. And I think that's the beauty of software development, that you know, product development comes, you know, Comes up starts with you know, coming up with crazy ideas and putting them in front of users. And so, yeah, like was a lot of our software uh, informed by users and you know, the market and market and market interests? Absolutely no question. But was the market also just generally attracted to the idea that we came up with? Yes, absolutely. Like there, there weren't too many successful CRMs that were oriented around relationships instead of transactions when we started. The real estate industry, you know, had a dearth of of quality CRM solutions or cl- quality cloud based CRM solutions, and so yeah, I, I think it's a convergence of everything. I'm curious, how did that market change the way that the product evolved? I think we, as the product evolved, we started just learning a lot more about the market. And you know, obviously, like again, a good product should be shaped by its users, not just their wants, but their needs as well. And so we kept a very close eye on qualitative and quantitative data, and that really helped inform a lot of our decision making. So, for example, one of the key aspects of Contactually is this idea of buckets. And again, the whole idea of prioritizing your relationships, uh, the P in capital, is identifying, you know, who do you need to keep in touch with out of your entire sphere of influence? That actually came to us from one of our early users who said, hey, I don't really like how your software works. I think about my network, my sphere of influence as sets of buckets. And he literally said the word buckets. And so we said, oh, that's actually a really good idea. Let's try that. So we tested buckets and now it's a core part of our overall experience.
0: It's it's become a popular metaphor with uh, Amazon's buckets for data as well. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I would say we are not unique in the in the usage of buckets. (laughs) it's funny you wouldn't expect it but somehow that's that's become something that people relate to so the, the product itself evolved in response to the real estate market but real estate wasn't the direction you were originally planning on going in was it helpful focusing in that way like how did that constrain or improve the process
1: Oh, yeah, no question. I think early on, Ria, I was a big fan of Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm book. The whole idea is that if you want to go from early adopters to early majority, you need to focus on a particular niche. And so we knew that you know, we were just too broad and we'd risk spoiling the ocean. We'd be you know, a mile wide and an inch deep in our market penetration. And so we decided hey, we wanted to focus on a market, and real estate ended up being it. Do I regret it? No. Do I wish, yo know, we could have moved to other markets? Yes. But like, I think, yo know, again, when we do our market research, you know, the residential real estate industry, there are 1.5 million real estate agents in the US, there's $20 billion paid in commission. So it's a massive, massive market that most people don't even think about that often. And so that's where, uh, you know, we decided to focus. And I'm very thankful, but had no idea founding the company that we would end up being a real estate
0: technology company. How far into the journey did you realize that that was going to be the focus? You
1: know, it was there was never any one moment. It was kind of more gradual over the years, probably around a year into after founding. We knew we wanted to focus on a market real estate ended up being a good one. So we started spending more and more time there. And it was just kind of more and more gradual. And I think it was only in 2016 that we said, hey, OK, we are only focused on real estate now for the foreseeable future.
0: And that, of course, led to that acquisition, I suppose. Yes, exactly. Let me take you back in your own career to when when you were starting out, because you talked about getting out of college, having kind of an introverted nature, but then getting relationships and suddenly you were a CTO. I'd love to see how, how did that transition happen? It was
1: not a very smooth transition, for sure. I was working for a government contractor at the time, and it was a great experience, but it was also a great learning experience that like, I'm not meant to work in large companies or not (laughs) meant to work for large government organizations. And that's fine. I respect people who do. And so I started just trying to figure out what I want to next. I was interested in entrepreneurship. Y Combinator had just started. So I was wanting to learn a little bit more. I was doing my reading. and I just wanted to meet other people who are entrepreneurs or trying to do entrepreneurship entrepreneur stuff. And so I started building relationships in the local community. From there, I end up just building a lot of good connections, I ended up leaving my company to join a small nascent nascent company. And that ended up actually being a really bad experience, unfortunately. And so I ended up leaving that and with no prospects, no idea of what I want to do next, no jobs lined up. I did the only thing I could think about at the time, which is just start pinging people I know saying, hey, by the way, this thing happened. I'm now a free agent. You know, If you happen to see anything, you just please think of me and started just flipping blood started coming in of you know of job opportunities and contract opportunities and even again at right place right time i happened to know the right person who knew the right person who had just raised money for his company and was looking for a cto and i had the right reputation so he said hey like you know, why don't you give this a try and that was an amazing ride and i've Tons of stories like that, you know, from my career, but it all comes down to just having the right people know you and having the right luck surface area and amazing
0: things happen. And, uh, you know, luck is obviously key to something like that, but it pays to help luck out by reminding people that you're there. Yeah,
1: ab- absolutely. And I, I think your know, luck isn't just sitting around and waiting for things to happen. You can manufacture luck. And so that's why, again, you know, the, a lot of relationship marketing is not about like, you know, fishing the pond for opportunities, but it's making sure that you have a large number of people of the right people that are thinking of you, that are top of mind. So when something hits somewhere, someone's looking for, you know, a realtor, or someone's looking for a CTO, or someone's looking for CRM software, that they think of you.
0: Or somebody's looking for a natural coach who might have an opinion about a retrospective tool. Exactly. (laughs) I can see how that can work. So this, uh, you say a couple of bad opportunities, some some things didn't work out, you came into one that did, did you jump right into the CTO role? How did that transition feel?
1: No, I jumped right in. It was one of those amazing things where it kind of went from zero to sixty from doing, you know, from being kind of on the beach you looking for, you know, work to do to all of a sudden working 80 hour weeks for a year. It was a, an amazing experience. And at the same time, I again, because I started seeing all these people through contract opportunities, I also was doing some consulting, et cetera. And as that company that I was CTO of was acquired, I moved on from that. And I again I wasn't kind of you know sitting around figuring out what to do. I had a big book of business and relationships that were ready to work with me. So I already had a consulting business and that still continued up to me, uh, founding Contactually.
0: So building a consulting business, obviously that's a place where keeping constant connection with the contacts that are out there who may need your services. That's how you build up that kind of an audience. You would think
1: so, but I wasn't very good at it, I would say. So I definitely had enough to like, more than enough to like put food on the table for me and build up a small team. But one of the, you know, it came out of this pain point that I knew I was leaving so much on the table. I was so focused on the business of today that I would handle the business of today plus whatever opportunities came via my network or my reputation. But past clients, you know, a project would roll off, and I'd never think about them again. Or I'd meet someone for coffee and then completely forget about them. So again, I like to say I was successful despite myself, <laughs> but uh, luckily uh, it ended up being. But this is where, you know, we saw there's a huge, huge opportunity.
0: That reputation that built up the original consulting business. How did you build that reputation and how did you build that client base?
1: Again, it started off just very small projects. You know, someone's friend's dad's construction company needed a new website, or some design, some developer just dropped off a project. Can you fill in? Uh, taking on these really small projects, but what that did is it started to build a track record. More importantly, it started to build a reputation, and reputations are our most important tool these days. And so, from that, you know, more things came up. So. For example, there was one creative agency that I was connected to that again, you know needed kind of some small fixes fixes to a project. Yeah, sure, of course, I did it charge them a few hundred bucks. But then they said, hey, we actually have a whole website built. Can you help with that? Yep. Yeah, I was able to be successful, did that. you built up the right reputation and word inside that organization spread. And they kind of kept throwing projects and kept thinking of me. I was introduced to a venture capital firm, for example. And again, just like, you know, hey, this is ESV. He's a really great developer, built a good company. If you're thinking, thinking about something, you know, please let me know. I had a good call with them. Nothing kind of came from it. Then all of a sudden, two weeks later, they called me out of the blue saying, hey, we're about to fire our software developer. Can we bring you on? And all of a sudden, again, you know, huge amount of work to do. There were a number of different projects like these that kept coming up. And again, you know, luckily what I did was table stakes, but I was able to do reliably and I had the right network. And so when people would ping their network to say, hey,
0: do you know a really good freelance software developer? They would think of me. And at some point, it sounds like you had to build up a team of folks to support you because you weren't you weren't adequate to all of the jobs that were out there.
1: Exactly. And again, even then, you know, as we know from hiring, you know, you can only like interview someone for so many skills or the resume may only tell you so much. But I did rely on my network to help me find, you know, really great designers, or other great developers and move from there. It's great to be in a position to be that connector who can get people jobs. Exactly. No, and that's that's you know one of the things that we talk about in the book is that it's an incredible asset to build and maintain relationships. And one of the ways to do that is also to make sure that you know, you're spe- that you're being proactive in helping connect others or create community in that way.
0: So, at some point along the way, as you as you developed into the executive that you became, you also built up a speaking career, right?
1: Yeah, I would say so. Like I never it was never really intention of mine. But I do believe in helping people build and maintain relationships. And so as part of that, you know, it's not just building software, but it's going on stage and helping share that message. And I also never thought I'd be a a published author, too. But uh, (laughs) here we are. The
0: two kind of play well together, I think. Exactly. How how did the speaking start? Because it's it's a place that I know a lot of people, they're, they're very reticent to even get up on stage and share their ideas.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that concept that most people won't is really important. Most people are afraid to go up and share their ideas. Therefore, you know, those who do, you know, should have no problem. It did start off like, you know, starting very small. Like I'd speak at local, like user groups. Like I spoke at Ruby user groups or WordPress developer meetups. So that gave me the confidence that I couldn't start speaking more. And then with Contactually, as we started to build build our software, we obviously started wanted to figure out how we can share our message, not necessarily trying to get users or customers, but like, how do we share a message? And maybe from there, that would attract the people that are interested. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it was a lot of cold pitching at first or speaking at local small events or doing webinars that ended up being the start of a, a really interesting uh, part of my overall career. Did you have anybody who helped mentor
0: you through that process?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say like I did rely on like other more professional speakers to help me with that. They gave me lots of tips and advice. I learned their body language and the tips they do. You know, I've gone to a couple things. I've done Toastmasters International. I've also uh, the local it's funny, the, the local Shakespeare theater company here in D.C. also has a, uh, a acting for business professionals class that I took. And so, yeah, I think uh, as long as you, know, you have a beginner's mindset, you can easily pick up additional skills like that.
0: There's a lot you can learn from the from the acting classes out there. I've taken I've gotten a lot of benefit from audition classes and vocal production classes. And they've, they've really contributed not only to my podcast, but also to my career.
1: Yeah. And I, even improv is uh, I haven't had the guts to do improv yet,
0: but uh, improv is more and more becoming a hotter and hotter tool. <laughs> I recommend it highly. Go read Keith Johnstone's book, Impro. That's awesome. <laughs> so as you move beyond the speaking, were the speaking engagements about the same topics that the book is about?
1: Yeah. So like it, my most of my speaking has been around the strategy behind relationship marketing and honestly being on stage a lot and sharing this and understanding the different aspects that people had questions about or concerns or were really interested in actually helped us help form a lot of the capital strategy and a lot of the book behind it, too. So I do actually recommend for anyone who's thinking about writing a book, write a talk first see if people care. And if a lot of people care or are interested in it, then great. Then maybe you've got something that you can then condense into something
0: that, you know, is much, much longer lasting than the ephemerality of a talk. That's test driven authorship, basically (laughs) figuring out if there's an audience before you spend a year and a half of your life building a book. I love that. It's a good idea. How, How long did it take you to write the book, by the way?
1: Oh, God. I mean, end to end four years. But like in reality, like, you know, heads down kind of writing the book, probably about six months.
0: So you were doing this while you were already an executive CEO of your own company while it was being acquired, I believe. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So lots of
1: Sunday mornings, my wife and daughter would go to the beach and I'd be in a dark coffee shop cranking out 2000 words at a time.
0: (laughs) Is that what your process looked like about 2000 words a day or?
1: Yeah, roughly. At the end of the day, like, I, I mean, I, I had a skeleton. I had like, I would jump around a fair bit. But when it came to crunch time, I was like, okay, I really just have to sit down today and I have to write 1000 words. And next week, I have to write 2000 words. And the following week, I have to write 1000 words. So I had to start kind of really setting goals. Because if you want to write a book, again, there's no wrong or right number. But you know, we were aiming for around 70,000 words.
0: Okay, and, and you say we is, did you have a co-author or was this editors you were working with? It is a little bit of a royal we. I was the main one doing the
1: writing, but again, I'm thankful to have the support of a team of you know my editor, then you know then a team of my editor, then other partners that we were working with, and brought on board proofreaders, you know, employees who'd be doing test reads. So there are a number of different people that touch this book. <laughs> was this published through a, like a formal publisher or
0: did you self-publish? Yeah, so we end up uh, working with McGraw-Hill. McGraw-Hill. How did you choose to go with a publisher in this day and age when self-publishing is so accessible and gives you so much more control over the process?
1: You know, there's no right or wrong answer. Yeah, The grass is always greener. At the end of the day, we decided to go with a mainstream publisher because I, I wanted this. Obviously, I could do a ebook at any point in time, or I could publish, I can self publish at any point in time. I really want to have the experience um, of and the brand of working and distribution power of a major publishing house. So I think that's a, a powerful thing that's still hard to replicate but you know to say that like hey i worked with mcgraw hill does lend a lot of way to it and, and with it they also brought like you know a top notch team that you know th- is defensive of the quality bar that's been set for decades and decades so i, I do believe that they helped really like you know, raise the bar of the book
0: I, I think working with a professional publisher can really make a difference for some people in, in terms of the way that they operate too did they have a timeline for you as well
1: yeah absolutely. I mean, they were flexible, but it was very helpful. and that you know the moment they signed the publishing contract, there was a firm date set in the stand saying, "You will deliver your manuscript by this time." And I was like, "Oh, okay, I guess it's it's go time. That was a forcing function that again, you may not always get it via self-publishing.
0: It's true. I've written one book, and I had a publisher, and the fact that they set a timeline and that there was a bonus associated with, with meeting that timeline was a very motivating factor for me. It works, right? Yes, it's surprising. And it's surprising how little it takes to tempt you forward. Yep. You got the book out there. I believe it was just released this week. What's been the
1: response? It's been great so far, and I'm, I'm an incredibly thankful for what we've seen. Good positive reviews, good sales traction. Obvious, but again, you know, going back to a point, point about software, I'm still in this phase where, like, I haven't yet heard of anyone who's read it all the way through. It's only been two days. I'm really excited to kind of hear the first person who read it through and said, "Yes, I love it." I've seen there are already some very positive reviews up on Amazon for it. Yeah, no, I'm very thankful. And those are those come from the you know people have seen review copies, or people have like started plowing through it. But this sounds weird. I'm almost looking for the first like three star review. I want to hear the person who like likes it but still had problems with some of it. I'm really excited for that because that'll tell me, okay, good. You know, I, I, I've got to start to get some critical
0: feedback on it. You sound like an agile executive. Those three star reviews can be really useful sources of information. <laughs> And so now the book is out there and you've already got the speaking career in place. Are you planning on developing this further?
1: So, yeah, so obviously, it's actually still up and running. We're obviously still supporting customers through it. Hard to say where we'll go from here. You know, I, I did want to write the book as a self-contained piece that wasn't reliant on speaking or classes or online content. You know, the, I wanted something that, like, you know, my kids could pick up in 15, 20 years and read and get value out of. Again, going back to this whole idea of the luck surface area, I've cast the book out and I want to see what happens from
0: it. And it's a good thing. It's not targeted just at the real estate professionals. So the fact that you've got a real estate professional, a targeted background, doesn't mean that that's the only people who will benefit from this. Exactly.
1: And uh, this is targeted at a, very, at a very wide audience. Again, relationships are our most important asset. And this applies to you know, pretty much any industry or any walk of life. Obviously more targeted towards professional services, but if you're looking for a job or you just graduated or looking for investors for your company, you know, you'll see that again, you know, we're human beings and we're wired to rely on that social network to stay safe and to figure out who to work with. So it's only natural that, you know, of course, we would care about relationships in that aspect too.
0: And that makes sense. And so beyond the fact that we have different tools now, are there ways that the 21st century changes this relationship and the way that people might be expected to relate to their networks?
1: Oh yeah, I mean I get it's it's that aspect of that we can be connected to so many people, which is great, but we also have to realize that for example, our customers, you know, they could work with any one of our competitors around the world, you know, as an agile coach, it used to be that maybe all the companies in your region, you know, would have to work with you. Now you could be working with a company in, you know, Tuscaloosa, Alabama or Thailand doesn't really matter. And so that means that, you know, the world at which we're competing with has gone up. And so if the knowledge gap is gone and the skills gap is gone, our relationships become a more and more important tool for us. I believe you mentioned that your company had distributed workforce as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. So most of our company is based here in Washington, D.C., but we've got people working for us in the Philippines. We've got people working for us
0: on the West Coast, in the Ukraine. So we've had to build a pretty good hybrid organization. And that implies a lot about not only matching time zones, but also crossing cultures and keeping those relationships effective. Exactly. Yeah. And so that was, uh, that's always an important thing. So making sure that, again, we care about those relationships with our employees as well. So the tools like Contractually, they relate to the way that we use things like LinkedIn, but it's a, it's a different approach when you have a CRM system.
1: Yeah. And so uh, the way I think about it is, you know, LinkedIn is almost like kind of like pennies, a jar full of pennies right? You know, it's collecting all these relationships. It's not necessarily helping you figure out who do I need to talk to or what do I need to talk to them. You know, whereas a CRM can almost be like a, that personal assistant tapping on the shoulder saying, hey, David, you should talk to these
0: five people today. Well, I think my, my listeners are probably going to be interested in finding out more about your book, and also finding out more about your speaking. Where can I send them to find out more information?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if you just do a quick Google search for "success is in your sphere," you can also go to successisinyoursphere.com dot and you'll find information about the book, purchasing links. We're donating all the proceeds to charity,
0: and of course, you also find information to stalk me personally if you want to as well. Fine. Well, I'll I'll, I'll notify all of the stalkers in my audience. Thank you, Zvi. It's been a real pleasure meeting you. David, thank you so much for your time. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.